Well, we are in a series entitled Add Some Verbs because, as we've talked about, Christian is not an adjective. It is a noun, and nouns need verbs. And so that's what we're looking at. And we're using James, the book of James, as kind of a template for our study to search for some verbs that we need to add to our faith. And today we're going to be looking at James chapter, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or in your Bible apps. So my guess is that pretty much every parent uh, has heard the phrase, or at least is familiar with somewhat of the phrase, um, you're not the boss of me, right? Some, uh, something along those lines. And so people can argue all they want about original sin, but I don't think any of us are going to argue that every single person is born and infected with the it's all about me virus. They get it very young. Symptoms start to show up as, as early as, uh, as you can see them. And we laugh at things like that video and things like it, although it's usually not as funny when it's your kid as when it's somebody else's kid. But it's definitely not funny when this attitude and mindset continues on into adulthood and into our relationships. And when it so often does, it's no surprise that we deal with one disturbance of peace after another. And I think this passage that we're going to look at today from James, it's kind of a long one, but I think it contains a few antidotes for this it's all about me virus. And just to let you know, James doesn't pull any punches here. I mean, he doesn't do that pretty much in the whole book. He's pretty straightforward and to the point, but especially uh, that is true here. And in essence, James says that conflict is present in our relationships and even in our relationship with God because one verb in particular is absent. And the answer is the addition of submission. So let me just give you a few equations as we walk through this passage that James gives us when it comes to adding this verb submit. And the first one is this. Submission plus humility plus selflessness equals true wisdom. Submission plus humility plus selflessness equals true wisdom. James starts off by saying in James chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now, why would James ask the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, because that's what people were saying in the churches that he is dealing with. They're talking about who's wise and understanding, and there's probably a debate over who's the wisest, who has the most understanding among them. By the way, it's no surprise that in chapter 4, a little bit later, just after we're not going to look at this, these particular two verses, but it's kind of at the end of this, this next section that he's going to talk about judgment and slander because usually people who think they're wise in their own eyes are also the people who are most judgmental of others. And so some of them are beginning to think that they're pretty wise, perhaps God's gift to the church. And James basically says, listen, if somebody is talking about how wise they are, probably not as wise as they think they are. Let the person who is wise show how wise they are by the way that they live, and in particular, by how much they live in humility. Wisdom is ultimately on display through how you live and not just what you say. You can have a brilliant mind, you can be really smart, have lots of great information, and be really informed and knowledgeable, and yet be very foolish. Because wisdom is more about how you live and what your life produces than how informed and intelligent you are. James goes on to stay in verse 14, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, that's in quotes for a reason, such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you have disorder and every evil practice. Speaking of wisdom, James begins to take on some of the wisdom that was floating around in the Roman Empire of that day. And some of the wisdom was basically this, that to achieve a quality of life means that you look out for number one. Selfish ambition was literally a certifiable piece of wisdom that was held up as something you should pursue in that day and age. Probably not all that far different than how we operate today. And so all of life is a competition, which means you need to look out for number one, and that's the way you get ahead and thrive in life. And James says that such Wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic, and in the end, it leads to disorder and destruction. And yet the reality is that 2,000 years later, we're not all that different. There are still many in our culture and even in our churches who resemble and subscribe to this wisdom. They think that selfish ambition is the only way to get ahead, that that's the way to a quality of life. You have to look out for number one, and maybe I'll help somebody along the way, but if it impedes my progress up to the top of the ladder, then everybody's on their own. I am worried about me. Now, chances are that all of us right now would not agree that that is wisdom, right? We would all affirm the fact that that's not very wise. Why? Well, for one, we're sitting in church, right? So we know the right answers because we're spiritually informed enough to know that that's not wisdom, or at least that's the answer we ought to give as to that not being wisdom. And yet the truth is, even though I say that's not wisdom, I still default to living by that wisdom every now and then. Think about this. There are more than seven and a half billion people on the planet. That's seven and a half billion different wills. But here's the problem. It's not that we all have different wills. It's that I can't get any of you, or at least enough of you, to go along with my will and my agenda for how life ought to be, right? That's really the problem. If you guys would just go along with what I want to do and how I think life should go, everything would be fine in my world. Maybe not in your world, but it would be fine in my world. But the problem is we've all got seven, our own, you know, out of seven and a half billion, we've all got our own ideas and wills for how reality ought to be and how everybody else ought to cooperate with my will and my agenda. And so we fight because we want most what we want most. Because this way of living, seven and a half billion of us living with selfish ambition, I don't think I need to tell you because you see it all around us, right? But it does not lead to peace, and it will not lead to a quality of life on this planet. And when you see people living this way, it's really not hard to see why it's not a wise way to live. It's a recipe for misery, and it will lead to chaos and a disorder. Having it your way works with burgers, but it does not work in real life. That, that may be the way Burger King does it, but the Prince of Peace calls us to a different way. So James then begins to define what true wisdom is, this wisdom from heaven. He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and it's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now this wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. 
Because it's a wisdom that's all about deferring to others and being considerate and submissive to the needs of others. It's about being full of mercy and being humble. But this is what it means to live wisely from heaven's perspective. And James says this in verse 18, when you live by that wisdom, when you sow in peace, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. And when you see that word righteousness, don't just think about moral purity. When James is writing about righteousness here, he's talking about righteousness in the sense of wholeness, of of being mature and complete. As one person described it, nothing missing and nothing broken. This wisdom from heaven that I live out where I'm submissive and I'm considerate and I'm full of mercy and I'm humble, I'm selfless. This is actually the way to having a world where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And that's the way to wholeness in relationships where nothing is missing and nothing is broken through living wisely in this way. And yet this path of living to be submissive, to be humble, to be selfless, it's hard to trust We can come in here on a Sunday morning and we can talk about these things and we can affirm these values that we know we ought to live by and yet it's hard to trust in our everyday lives when the rubber meets the road. How do I know it's hard to trust? Because far too often we still default to other ways of living. And so to help us think through this, James turns us back and he says, I want you to think through selfish ambition. How do you think this is really going to work out for you if you keep living this way? Which brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You want to know why you fight. You want to know why you and I can't get along sometimes. Don't, you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. And so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James says that our quarrels and fights are prompted by desires that are battling within us. The reason I fight with others is because of a lack of peace in my own heart. It's worth noting that the Greek word for desires here is the word hedon, which is where we get the word for hedonism, which is basically the philosophy of life that assumes that my personal pleasure is my life's primary objective. But here's the deal. If my personal pleasure is my life's primary objective, then it will inevitably bring me into conflict with others whose objective is their own personal pleasure as well. Does that make sense? If my wife and me both have our personal pleasure as the primary objective in our marriage, then we are going to struggle. That's why we have issues with our kids, right? Because their primary objective is their own personal pleasure. And we don't have, share that same primary objective, right? But that's why, that's why we struggle. We're going to come into conflict. If I, if I can only be at peace with other human beings, as long as other human beings care about gratifying my own personal pleasures and desires as much as I do, then I'm not going to have very much peace in my life. In fact, I'm going to spend the rest of my life mostly at war with others and even at war within myself and dealing with perpetual disappointment and anger with other people because they're not cooperating with my agenda for my pleasure and my convenience. James continues in verse 2. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. In other words, James is saying, listen, there's a better way of dealing with your desires. Instead of fighting with your siblings, how about you talk to your father? We all have desires, and oftentimes we're frustrated by our lack of satisfaction. James says, talk to God about it. 
bring it before him, lay it before his feet. Of course, I'm sure that there were some who James was speaking to who would have said, well, I, I tried praying. Maybe some of us have said something along these lines. I tried praying, but it didn't work. And maybe you've heard those words before. Maybe you've even uttered those words before or something like it or thought something like it. But in truth, what we really mean is I tried telling God what I wanted and he didn't listen, right? I tried telling God what what I really needed to have happen and God didn't go along with what my desires were. He didn't give it to me. So listen to what James goes on to say in verse three. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let me tell you what, God loves us. God loves you. And he wants to give you good gifts. But he's not a cosmic vending machine that you put in your quarters or your dollars or nowadays your credit cards, I guess. And you punch the number that you want and out pops God's gift to you. He's not a cosmic vending machine, nor is his mission to serve our self-interest. The purpose of prayer isn't to get God's will aligned with my will. It is to get my will aligned with his will. The purpose of prayer isn't to get my will endorsed in heaven. It is to get God's will done on earth. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Isn't that what he modeled us? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think about it. God, if you give me what I want, will you get what you want? Is what I'm praying for right now going to bring you honor? going to expand your kingdom, going to make your love and your son known and magnified. If I get what I want, will you get what you want? Truth is, if we're just being real and honest, a lot of us sometimes would rather fight than pray like that. Because that can be a hard prayer to pray. But James isn't done yet. It gets worse. But it gets worse to make us better, so don't worry. Which leads to another equation James gives us, and it's this. Closeness with the world equals conflict with God and others. Listen to what James says in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, you adulterous people, because he's, you know, he's just being very, you know, shallow with his commands, right? Uh, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And so James takes it even deeper. He says the reason you're at war with each other is because you've got out-of-control desires within you. And your out-of-control desires within you are a testament that you're in an affair with the world. You're too close to the world's values and the way the world thinks and the way the world operates. Have you ever thought about that word desire? De-sire? You know what sire means? Sire means to, to, to father something, to give birth to something. So, you know, a, a, a sire is, you know... You, you sire something, man and a woman, union, something is, is sired. A human being is, is sired. And, and your desires and my desires are, are, you know, born out of something, right? They're, they're born out of what you and I are united with. Does that make sense? So your desire is born out of what you are united with, what you are consumed with. 
what you are connected to and invested in. And so if I'm more united with this world, if I'm more in communion with the values and the, and the, the, the ethics and the, the, the important things that this world says are important, than I am with God's values and his will, then that will give birth to and strengthen certain desires in my life. And if I'm more connected and, communion, and in communion with God's values and God's will for my life, then that's going to strengthen and, and, and give birth to other desires. You see, contrary, we live in a world that says, I can't help, I can't help it. I just, I am the way that I am, the desires I have, you know, and, and, and I, I, there are certain things where we, we do live in a fallen world. The Bible, I think, is pretty clear, you know, that, you know, we, we live in a world that says, I have no measure of authority over what I desire. I have no measure of authority over my thoughts and, and what I think and the desires that I have and how strong they are. People say, I can't help it. And yet scripture, I think, paints a different picture because actually you can. You can feed certain desires within you by what you feed your ears and your eyes and your mind. What are you watching? What are you listening to? What kind of people are you around? What kind of conversations do you involve yourself in? It shouldn't be a surprise if, if you're, if you're, feeding your eyes and your ears and your mind these types of actions and, and, and thoughts that you have those same desires, that you have those, those thoughts that continuously flood your heart and your mind because that's what you're giving attention to because your desires are informed by what you meditate and what you think on. And what you meditate and think on is born out of what you feed your eyes and your ears and your mind. Desire is a product of what you are in communion with with. And you can, you can kind of reverse engineer that too, right? So you can look and say, you know, what I'm in communion with or what, what my desires are, that's, that's what I'm in communion with. So you know, that can be a scary thing too. How, how connected, I'm much more connected maybe than what I thought I was to these things. That's why there are times when I desire very godly things because I'm communing with God and submitting to him. But there are also seasons in my life where I'm not desiring very godly things because I'm more in communion with the things of this world and the values of this world. And those other desires are awakened within me. Does that make sense? I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He said, every time, this is so, this is so good. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Your desires are born out of what you are in communion with. And if I'm in communion with the wrong things, little by little, choice by choice, it shapes the desires of my heart. And those desires of my heart, when they get out of control, begin to wreak havoc in my relationships. Do you see the path? Boom, 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 boom. This is how it happens. 
And James comes along and said, your fighting with each other is tied to your out-of-whack internal desires. And your out-of-whack internal desires are tied to you being too friendly with the world and the values and the perspectives of this world. And you know what? God doesn't take too kindly to being cheated on. He's jealous, and he will pursue us, and he will seek to get our attention. If we are prideful, how he does it can sometimes be perceived as tough love. God opposes the proud, James says. But you know why he opposes the proud? Because he's trying to reach the proud. And if the proud will humble themselves, they'll find grace. So here's the question. What do you do if you realize, whoa, I am off course. My desires are out of whack. I am in an affair with this world. At least I'm a little too cozy. We always like to think that we've gone that far, but maybe I'm a little cozier than what I ought to be. What do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. And it leads us to the last equation James points to in this section. It's this. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Equals lifted up. Submit to God plus resist the devil equals lifted up up. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And then listen to these verbs that James gives us. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now remember, James says this to believers. He's not saying this to, 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 to non-believers. He's saying this to believers, to followers of Jesus. There are times when I, as a believer, have to submit myself again to God. That's a daily process, right? You don't just submit yourselves when you, are, you, you give your life to Jesus Christ and you're baptized into him, like, and that's the last time I have to submit. Thank goodness for that. Man, I'm done with the submitting part. No, that's every day. Every day you and I need to make that choice again. And there are times when I have to say, God, this is where I am. I want this, and I want it too bad. And I want it for probably all the wrong reasons. And it's wrecking my life, and it's wrecking my relationships. I need your help. I don't need your help to get it. I need your help to change me. Help me. You see, a lot of times we find ourselves praying for deliverance and peace from our problems, particularly when we're in a rough season in our lives. And sometimes the reality is I brought that rough season on my life, right? I, I brought it by some of the choices that I made and the decisions and the values that I've ascribed to that allowed my desires to get out of whack and that caused some problems in my life and I'm in my relationships because I valued the wrong things too much. And I took it out on my relationships. I get miserable. And so I start praying, God, give me deliverance. God, give me peace in the midst of what I'm going through. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm guessing pretty much every one of us have been in that spot or something similar. You know what God's answer often is to that cry for deliverance and peace and for God to rectify the situation, to make it right, to take what was wrong and make it right or, you know, change some things? You know what God's answer to those things is? Submit. Submit to me. We want God to change things. We really want him to submit to us, right? God changed this. And yet God's answer to us is, Submit to me. Submit to me, and you'll find the true deliverance and peace that you've been looking for. You see, there are times when what I want changed in my circumstances doesn't need to be changed as much as I need to be changed. 
And God is always eager to respond with grace when we submit to him, even when we've acted like his enemy. Also notice James says that when you submit to God and you draw near to God, what will happen? God will draw near to you. I'm going to make sure I say this. Deeper intimacy with God is not something you drift into, okay? I want, let, me, let me say that again to make sure I'm clear. Deeper intimacy, a deeper relationship with God is not something you get through osmosis. It's not something you get just by, you know, coming to church for an, an hour or so, or even, you know, a couple times during the week. Deeper intimacy with God is not something you drift into. Nobody is going to just accidentally stumble into a closer relationship with God. You're not going to trip on it on your way out. Like, oh my goodness, man, I didn't even realize it was there. Wow, my intimacy with Jesus is so much deeper today. You're not going to stumble into it. You come close to God as a result of intentionally drawing close to him. And here's the good part. God will come close to you. And submitting to God and drawing close to God is the first step in resisting the devil. The reason the devil flees is because you've drawn near to God and God's drawn near to you. And Satan will mess with you. He will mess with you. He will not mess with God. He will mess with you all the time. But he will not mess with God. By the way, this is also the first step to transformation. You won't be transformed, your life, your habits, your behavior, without submitting to God because you need a power greater than you to overcome the enemies that are working against you. And here's the good news. As we humble ourselves, God says, I will lift you up. I will lift you up. Jesus offers two promises. This is, there is so much packed into these this one verse, two sentences. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Now, I got to tell you, that is a sobering verse. And let me also tell you this. You don't want God to humble you. Okay? He will. You don't want him to. You want to humble yourself. I promise you that. But as sobering as that promise is, listen to the second words that Jesus gives because these words are so liberating. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because you see, when we add submit to our faith, we don't have to claw and clamor to try and build ourselves up at the expense of others, but rather we're freed up because we know who we are in Christ. And so we can buy into this wisdom from heaven to be submissive, to be considerate, peace-loving, humble, selfless, all those things that James talks about. We can be those things towards others because we believe and trust in God's promise that when we humble ourselves before him and before others, he will lift us up. We don't have to lift ourselves up. It doesn't work that way anyways. But we trust that he will. And so he invites each of us to enter into the peace of knowing that you are loved by him and that you no longer have to fight to be a somebody, but that you are a somebody because of who you are in him. And listen, submit. It's not lost on me. Trust me. It's not like you can ask my wife. It's not lost on me. Uh, submit's a hard verb to add. It is. 
but you and I can add it because we trust that God gives grace to the humble.